Morning, everybody. Please do sit down. Let me ask you to reach for a Bible as I uh, add my welcome to Maddie. It's great to have you here. Lots of people joining us from out of town and are thrilled that you're able to be here. If we've not met, my name's Paul. I'm the minister here, and it is a joy to welcome you. In the, if you're in one of our Bibles, you need to be on page 1023, 1023, 1 John chapter 5, if you're in one of your own. As Matty said, we're due to finish our series in 1 John this morning. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we turn to God's word together. Our Father, we want to thank you again for the gift of eternal life that is ours in the Lord Jesus. We know that the words of the Lord Jesus are spirit and they are life. And so we pray that as we read and reflect on your word this morning, you might speak to us, you might energize us, and you might give us life in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And we are going to read from 1 John chapter 5 and starting at verse 4 down to the end of the chapter. John writes, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God 
and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, I hope you'll keep that open in front of you. There's one or two quite technical verses in there. I hope we'll be able to work our way through them, though we won't be able to cover everything. There's also an outline of the the talk this morning on the back of the notice sheet you were given when you came in, and uh, I'd love you to turn to that so you've got it in front of you. Well, if you've um, been with us these last couple of months, I hope you, like me, you found uh, 1 John to be a, a deeply encouraging letter. It's written because it's very easy, even as Christians who are living in the world, to lose confidence in Jesus Christ. Um, the world loves to tell us, doesn't it, that our beliefs have been disproved by science, that our views aren't just outdated but dangerous. And then the worldly church sings very happily from the same hymn sheet. It tells us we need to get with the times. We need to move on from what the Bible teaches. And in the face of that that double pressure from the world and the worldly church, it can be very unsettling. And so John writes to reassure us. Um, He states the letters aimed boldly in verse 13. You see it there, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. But the issue is that you can't see eternal life, can you? You can't touch it. So how can you know that you have it? Well, John has given us three hallmarks that confirm the authenticity of our faith. They're distinct from one another, but they're absolutely inseparable. And they are truth, love, and obedience. They've kind of bubbled to the surface regularly through the letter. The truth question is, what do I believe about Jesus? Do I believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God? Do I believe that he came into the world in the flesh, in love to die, so that everyone who believes in him might be forgiven of our sin? Do I believe that? Uh, Lots of people move on from those central truths. They, They maybe start their Christian life in a church like this, and then they think it's okay to move on from them, to leave behind the message of Jesus and him crucified. That message can be either denied or just displaced. But true faith abides in the truth about Jesus. The love question has simply been, what and whom do I love? And John's put these polar opposites in front of us. Do I love the world? and its desires, and the things that it teaches? Or do I love God and his people? And of course, the world tells me all the time that I'm free to ignore God. I'm free to follow the desires of my heart. We call it being true to ourselves. And in our age, we affirm and validate just about every expression of it. But John says, well, when you listen to that inner voice, rather than to the outside voice of God. That's not freedom. That's not being true to yourself. That's lawlessness. That's sin. But true faith first receives the love of God in Jesus and then overflows in love for God and for his people. So truth, love, and obedience. Uh, God is righteous, light, perfect and holy in every way. So you can tell who his children are because they practice righteousness. We don't do it perfectly, of course. We've seen that all the way through, haven't we? But you, can, you can't know God and be in the regular habit 
of choosing to, to block out his will, his word from your life. So three hallmarks, truth, love, and obedience. And John's given them to us because he's been trying to expose the people who had left the church. We've been calling them the leavers, the people who have moved on from the apostles and their teaching. We've been trying to expose them as frauds and to encourage anyone who's remained, who's abiding in the truth of Jesus to say, you really do know God. You have fellowship with him. You have eternal life. That's the kind of big picture of the whole letter. It's no surprise then that it ends with three statements of reassurance. You may pick them out as we read through. They all begin with, and this is the. So one in verse four, this is the victory. One in verse 11, this is the testimony. And then in 14, this is the confidence. And those are our three points this morning. First, this is the victory, faith in the Son. Verse 4, once again, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I think it's true that most of us like to win. Some people sit pretty loose to it, but we love it when our teams win. If we support any, we love it when our children win. If we're standing on the sideline cheering, we love it when we win. Uh, there are people in the room today, I'm not going to name them, but to all the world, they look like very, very lovely people. But when you play a board game with them, they turn into some sort of wide-eyed savage. You probably uh, are sitting next to one. We love to win. Uh, The trouble is that when you look at the history of the church, at any moment, pretty much, and in any place down through history, it doesn't look all that victorious. And if we were to to zoom in on your own Christian life, and we were to think about the the doubts that we have, the discouragements we feel, the disenchantment, sometimes feeling disengaged from Jesus, being disobedient to him even. Well, I bet your own Christian life doesn't feel all that victorious either. So I hope this can be an encouragement this morning. This is the victory. And it's as simple as faith in Jesus, the son. Uh, We know that he didn't look very victorious when he was hanging on the cross. We'll think about this at Easter, won't we? But that was his glory. That was his hour, his moment, the time when he drove out the prince of darkness, when he conquered the world and the devil once and for all. And when we put our faith in him, we're, we're joined to him and we're welcomed onto his winning team. This is the victory, faith in Jesus. What John does next from verses 6 to 10 can seem a bit disconnected, can't it, as well as complicated. It's as simple, though, as he's reminding us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're not putting our faith in myth or make-believe, but in one who really is the Son of God. And any lawyer is laughing if they can call three witnesses to support their case in court. And that's what John does here. Verse six, again, see if we can track together. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit testifies because the spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. 
So witness number one is the, the water. Bucket load of theories about what that might be. I think it's most likely Jesus' baptism when the, the spirit of God descended on him and the father spoke from heaven to say, this is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Uh, the second witness is the blood, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. John's already told us that's how we are cleansed from our sin. But the point here is that the, the cross of Jesus wasn't just a moment of salvation, but of revelation. It was the moment when, as the sign above him read, the king of the Jews, he was declared to all the world to be the son, the savior of the world. And then witness three is the spirit. And as I said last week, all through 1 John, the, the work of the Spirit is to testify to the message of Jesus. And he does it through the testimony of the apostles. But the, the key thing here is at the end of verse 8, three witnesses, and they all agree. Which means that when we put our faith in Jesus, we can be sure that he really is the Son of God. That's why we can have confidence in victory not defeat, not just making ourselves feel better about life or some blind faith thing. It's victory because of who Jesus is. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever doesn't believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So when I'm listening to the, the message of Jesus, when I'm listening to the apostles, that's not just some human opinion about God. That is God's testimony to the world about Jesus. He is the son. He is the savior. And that means there's only two ways I can respond. I believe, I receive him and the truth. Or I reject it. And if I reject what God is saying about Jesus, I am saying that God is a liar. That's what the leavers were doing. We've seen they were rejecting the testimony of the apostles. They were denying stuff about Jesus. They were calling God a liar, saying that they knew better. But John's primary point at this stage of the letter isn't about the leavers. It's about us. That if we're believing in Jesus as he was proclaimed by the apostles, we can be confident because the gospel is as true as God himself is true. So this is our victory. Simple faith in the Son. There's a lot there already, isn't there? Let me just um, pick up one little bit of it to, to dwell on. There'll be other things you want to reflect on in your own time. But I find this really liberating. Because even though the, the first point has faith in the, the title, turns out it's not really about us at all. The victory belongs to Jesus. He's the king, and we just ride on his coattails. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, thank God that my salvation doesn't depend upon my frail hold on him, but upon his mighty grasp on me. And this is a variation of that. Thank God that our victory doesn't depend on us and the strength of our faith and how good we are at living the Christian life, but on the truth that Jesus is the Son, just as God has said. We love to win. It's natural. 
And we can be reassured that even though our Christian life often feels like failure, even though the church often looks beaten, this is the victory, faith in the Son. Second, this morning, this is our testimony, life in the Son. Let me read this time from verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son of God doesn't have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, The letter opened by John uh, reassuring us of the reliability of the apostles' testimony about the word of life. And now it ends by reminding us of the gift of life that he gives to all who believe in the apostles' testimony. And those 12 words summarize it wonderfully. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Uh, He'll add in verse 20, Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. That's because all of our life, all of our hope is in him. And in fact, there is no other life, spiritual life. There is no other hope. There is no other truth apart from him. That is why it's so serious when the the leavers were departing from the message of Jesus. Without him, you haven't got any life left. But conversely, and again, the stress is on the positive. If you do have the son, you have eternal life. And God wants you to know that you have eternal life. See some stuff that that John doesn't say here? John doesn't say, if you know loads about the Bible, if you grew up in a Christian home, if you know every psalm tune before they even start singing, if you feel that your face fits when you walk through the door of church, if you've got A-star social skills, if you've got the gift of teaching, if you give lots of money to the church, if there's no major sin in your past, if you've got... Uh, a spouse and 1.7 kids and a dog, then you have eternal life. He just says, if you have Jesus, the true Jesus, obviously, the one who is proclaimed by the apostles, if you have him, you have eternal life and nothing and no one can take it away. So again, the world might call you a fool or a bigot, The worldly church might say you're on the wrong side of history. You need to get with the times and so on. But frankly, who cares what the world says? Because God says you have eternal life. And I want you to know that you have eternal life. And Christians, this is our testimony. This is what we cling to in our hearts, isn't it? This is what gives us strength when we suffer. I know some of you are at the moment really badly. This is where we find strength. This is what gives us hope when we're facing the end. We have life in the sun. And therefore, this is also our message to the world. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once told some preachers, here's what your message should be. Preach Christ and Christ and Christ and nothing else but Christ. 
And you'll see here that John puts the message in the positive and in the negative. The positive sounds lovely, doesn't it? If you have Jesus, you have life. That's affirming. That's inoffensive. It's trendy in churches at the moment only ever to put stuff in the positive. But the apostle of love, John, puts it in a pretty striking negative as well. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. And it's hearing the negative that rams home the meaning of the positive. So this is our testimony. We're aware that if you're just a, a guest here this morning, you don't usually go to church. You, you hear that sentence, if you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. The language is so stark, it would be really easy to, to take offense at that and to stop listening, to switch off. But, but we all know, don't we, that, that whether or not I'm offended by something isn't the best guide of whether or not it's true. Uh, if a, my doctor tells me that I'm overweight and need to go on a diet, I might be slightly offended, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. So what's the better thing to do? If we're talking about something as serious as whether or not I have eternal life, if the stakes are that high, then I owe it to myself to give good time to working through my response to Jesus. This Easter is a great time to do that. Pick up one of the accounts of his life in the New Testament. We've got one we can give you if you'd like it. And read through it from start to finish and work out what you make of him. Because this is the testimony. If you don't have him, you don't have life. There's no hope. Nothing beyond the grave but pain and punishment. But incredibly... And again, the, the stress is on the positive. If you do have the Son, or if today you were to start believing in the Son, if you were to receive his love today and the forgiveness he gives to all who trust in him, then you would go home today with eternal life. We're talking about a, a secure, living, and fulfilling relationship with God himself in which we walk in his light and we share in his life and we enjoy his love now and forevermore. That's the testimony. That's the offer. And we want to encourage you to receive it. And if you do believe it, we want to encourage you to share it. Imagine you discovered a disease for heart disease, uh, a cure for heart disease, and you knew in an instant that it could change the lives of millions. There's no way you'd want to keep it to yourself. Well, here is the word of life. Has the power to change the eternity of anyone who believes it. It'd be a wonderful thing if there was someone you could invite to that Easter Cayley or to one of our services in a couple of weeks' time. Second, today then, this is our testimony, life in the sun. Third and finally, this is our confidence. We're safe in the sun. I put a couple of subpoints on the sheet again. First, the Father hears us. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. Don't say the one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that doesn't lead to death. 
There's a, there's a point here about prayer in general, isn't there? We had it in chapter three as well. This is the, the confidence that we have. You don't approach God if you're a Christian with your, your knees knocking as though he might be vengeful or unkind. Uh, you don't approach him walking on eggshells as though he's just looking for an excuse to throw the book at you. You don't approach as though he hasn't got time for you or he doesn't know you or he's not interested in what's on your heart at the moment. You approach him in prayer with boldness and freedom because he gave his only son to bring us into a relationship with him. And he loves it when we live out that relationship with him in prayer. So we approach him with confidence. We know that we're his dearly loved children. And whenever we ask anything, anything at all, according to his will, he guarantees to give it to us. That should make us want to pray, maybe more confidently, maybe more urgently, maybe more often than we sometimes do. But there's a special focus here on praying for one another. And there's been loads in 1 John about loving one another. And he ends the letter to say one big way that love works itself out is in the prayers we say for one another. And here's the question. What do you do when you see a, a Christian brother or sister sin? What's your first reaction? Uh, maybe you hear them gossip or you hear them slander someone. Uh, you see a, a flash of impatience or anger in them. You, you see them being a bit selfish in a decision they're making or they're using their humor to belittle someone or their words are springing from pride, or you can tell that there's a, a lack of forgiveness in their heart. What do you do? It's easy to, to judge them, isn't it? It's easy to be frustrated by the sins of others. It's easy sometimes maybe just to let them pass us by. We know that we're sinners as well. You think, oh, it's none of my business, really. Well, John says, pray for them because God will hear. And he will use your prayers as the means by which he keeps your friend in the light until they receive life in the new creation. And friends, our prayers for one another are that important. You believe that? That God gives us as we pray a role in the preservation of one another's faith. And I reckon they're doubly important, in fact, because if you, you found this, when we do sin, we often stop praying for ourselves, like Adam in the garden, we hide from God rather than running back to him for forgiveness. How much more important then that we're praying for one another? Probably asking what kind of sin he's talking about. What are these sins that don't lead to death or that do? Some people say the sins that lead to death are particularly heinous sins like adultery or murder or that they're intentional sins. But 1 John's been pretty clear, though, if we confess our sins, however heinous, however intentional, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confessed sin never leads to death, always to life. And it's been the sin of believers, hasn't it, that leads to, to death? the decisive rejection of Christ, the rejection of the forgiveness that he died to bring. 
choosing ultimately to love the world instead of God. And John says there's no command to pray for people like that. Someone leaves the church in abandons of faith. There's no command to pray. There's, there's no prohibition on praying for them either. Of course you can, but there's no command. What is commanded, though, is that when a believer, when one who's in the church sins, we pray for them. Lord, please forgive her her anger problem. Please forgive his selfish pride and give them life on the last day. And God will hear and God will answer your prayer and they will live forevermore. I hope we'll want to be praying for each other. And as the Father hears us, so the Son keeps us. A couple more minutes for verses 18 to 20. Three things that we know. Do you see that? We know, we know, we know. And they're all about the safety and our status in God's family. Let me just read them again, starting in verse 18 over the page there. We know that everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning. But he who is born of God Jesus protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Three neat reminders of stuff we've seen already in the letter. Verse 18 is about our enemy, the devil, who we saw is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But we know that we're safe forever in the hands of Jesus, untouchable. We overcome. Then in verse 19, the world, the worldly church, they both lie in the power of the evil one. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. He seduced the minds of believers and led them away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But that's not who we are. We know that we're from God. We belong to him. We have life in him. In verse 20, we know too that the result of the son's coming is that we know and abide in the God who is true because we abide in Jesus. And he is the true God and eternal life. Those few words are an incredible thing, aren't they? For uh, a Jewish man like John to say about his friend, the carpenter. Ever since the cradle, John would have been brought up to believe that there's only one true God. And he's so big and so mighty that even the highest heavens cannot contain him. And here he is saying, my friend, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. It's right then that we end the series in 1 John by talking about him. He's been the very, very heart of the letter. The leavers were denying him. The apostles were proclaiming him. And John's been encouraging us to abide in him. This is the 17th century writer, John Owen. The saints delight in Christ. He is their joy, their crown, their rejoicing. Their life, food, health, strength, desire, righteousness, salvation, and blessedness. Without him, they have nothing. In him, they shall find all things. And if one John's done its work in us, that sense of Jesus is everything. 
and Jesus is my everything, will have been growing in us. And that's why the letter ends, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Striking, isn't it? The, 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 the worldly religion of believers is idolatry. John says that word almost casually. But it is a sign of how offensive it is to God when the worldly church departs from the gospel that had been entrusted once and for all to the apostles for the church. And so John says to his beloved friends, his children in the faith, whatever you do, keep yourself from the repugnant false religion of the worldly church and abide in and with Jesus. He is the true God. He is eternal life. If you have him, you have life. And you can know that you have eternal life. Let's pray together. Hello, Father. We've read much uh, in this passage that maybe confuses much that's technical. But we thank you for this clear message right at the heart of everything. That if we have Jesus, we have eternal life and we can know that we have eternal life. Thank you, therefore, for your son, the one who is the true God, the one who is eternal life. Thank you for uniting us to him. Thank you for giving us victory in him. Thank you for giving us the privilege of telling the world about him. And thank you that we are safe in him. We pray, therefore, that you would keep us from idols, that we might abide in Jesus. We might be quick to love one another and to pray for one another. And so that we might be kept until the day when we all stand around the throne of the Lord Jesus and praise him forevermore. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.